If you were in the middle of the ocean on a sailboat enjoying an extended journey and a huge storm came over the horizon and you had to weather that storm, what would you do? I suppose the main point here is that there's no choice but to weather the storm. The storm is inevitable, but you can still do the best that you can do while on the sailboat. Thank you for listening to Weathering Coronavirus Updates and Hope today. Today is April the 28th, 2020, Tuesday. I had been waiting for Monday, the 27th, and part of the reason for that is because there were promises of new health orders and executive orders from the governor of Colorado and the state health department and the county health departments that would somewhat redefine what our social distancing imperatives were going forward. Well, that information started coming out, and it's taken me quite a while to sort out what it all means. Well, today I want to share with you where we are, the truth about coronavirus now at the end of April, nearing the beginning of May, and I'm calling it Much Ado About Nothing. So what really is going on with coronavirus currently, and what is the correct path forward? The reality is that not a lot has changed. And I don't want to be depressing, but the facts are the reality with which we must deal. The facts are the storm. However, we can still be at the helm of our boat, and we can still do the best we can and make wise individual decisions. This is the current state of affairs as best as I've been able to sort them out. And I don't doubt that I haven't sorted everything out, and I am purposefully leaving out some of the detail just to kind of encapsulate the scenario for you. But the first point is, the masses are getting restless. What does this mean? This means that the populace around the planet are starting to have demonstrations and protests, and the noise is starting to raise that we can't continue on in this social isolation, in this extreme social distancing, in this shutdown slash lockdown scenario. However, where are we with the virus itself? Well, some good news is that hospitalizations have slowed. Matter of fact, the hospitalization curves have flattened, and this is because of this extreme social distancing. Really, it's because of the shutdowns and the lockdowns. Economic conditions are horrible, and they're getting worse. And the longer this continues, the worse they're going to get. If we were to stop the social distancing measures, and that really I don't like that word, let's face it, if we were to try to take necessary economic actions, meaning everyone's back to work, it's pretty much business as usual, then a second huge outbreak is almost inevitable, very, very likely. And the reason for this is, consider how coronavirus started with a single case in China. It grew from there. It traveled by air and sea to nations around the world. And we had just one seed, and then with few seeds that traveled to the various countries that turned into millions of cases around the planet. And now those are all seeds if you take a moment to consider how this works, it's kind of like exponential growth. And let me see if I can explain that in a very simple way. This is a severely oversimplified model just for the sake of explanation, but it kind of gets the point across. Let's say that one person is sick, and that person makes one other person sick in one day. On day two, there are two sick people. 
And those two sick people make two other people sick in one day. On day three, there are four sick people, etc. So each day you have a doubling of the number of cases. Well, in 14 days, the first person, the case resolves. Hopefully that means they've recovered. So on day 14, with this daily doubling, you have 8,192 cases, but one person got well. So the 8192 becomes an 8191. Then the doubling continues, subtracting the people that are now getting well again. So the people that 14 days ago contracted it, they get pulled out of the total. So the next day, which is day 15, we have 16,382 cases. And then the next day after that, 32,760 cases. We continue for 30 days, right? So a total of 30 days, we now have 8,192 cases that have resolved. We also have 133,988,352 sick individuals. 133 million cases in 30 days. This is what the world was concerned about. Now, the bad news is the r not value is higher than 2. The good news is it wasn't higher than 2 per day. It was higher than 2 per case, meaning that if someone got sick, on average, about 3 other people are going to be sick. So in this example, we've accelerated the amount of time it takes for someone to actually catch coronavirus, right? And that's why the numbers seem so hyperinflated. But that was what we were trying to avoid as a world. Remember, this started with one person. I'm going to call that person the seed. It started with one seed and in a month's time went to 133 million. So in this example, we have one other person getting sick each day, which is not really the way that this works. But it does illustrate what exponential growth can do. Rather, let's propose another model that is a little bit closer to the way that it really works. And this is not a definitive model. This is not how the government's doing it. I just want to illustrate a point. On day one, one person is sick. And this person, over the duration of the illness, is going to make three other people sick. And we're setting the duration of the illness to 14 days, which is a good average for COVID-19. So let's say on day three, this person makes two other people sick. And then let's say they develop symptoms, they begin to quarantine, and maybe one other person gets sick, a family member or a healthcare provider, maybe midpoint through the illness on day seven. And then they make it the rest of the way through the illness and no one else catches it from them. So that's kind of the way it goes. Day three, two people get sick from one person. And then on day seven, another person gets sick from that same person. So what happens over 14 days? Turns out 38 people got sick from one person in 14 days. So from one seed that was planted, we have 38 fruit. But now we have 38 seeds, and they're ongoing. So what happens in the next 14 days? So to oversimplify it a little bit, you could assume that each of these 38 people will make another 38 people sick in the next 14 days. So that means 1,444 cases at the end of 28 days. And that's using an r naught value of 3. In reality, COVID-19 spread a lot faster than this. And I think the reason is because initially we didn't have an r naught value of 3. 
initially, people didn't know what was going on, and life was continuing as normal, so the R-naught value was much higher than 3. But if the R-naught value were limited to 3, then we get somewhere around, you know, the 1400 mark in 14 days. However, this is an oversimplified model, no one quote me on this, but the main reason I put this out there is to illustrate a point. Now consider for a moment that instead of having one person at the beginning of that time, you have two million people who are seeds. What happens in the next 28 days? That is the threat of a second outbreak. The first outbreak was triggered by one person. The second outbreak would be triggered by two million people. So you can see why the second outburst could be much, much greater than the first. This is the reason why it's so difficult for healthcare workers to say, yeah, it's time, let's just drop our social distancing and get back to life as normal. No, it's much, much more dangerous now than it ever was before. Consider that right now we have about 2 million active cases. So there have been over 3 million cases worldwide. Almost a million have recovered. Hooray, so that puts us somewhere around 2 million active cases today. And the reality of that is that we know it's much more than 2 million because only a tiny fraction of the world's population has been tested. But regardless, 2 million active cases, we have 7.7 .7 billion people on the planet. So just a tiny fraction of the world's population has officially contracted the disease. So really, we're in a very young stage of coronavirus. Yeah, we've been in this lockdown, shutdown mode now for weeks, and the people are getting restless, and the politicians and the leadership are trying to decide what to do. But does this mean we're ready to take on coronavirus wide open with no holds barred? Absolutely not. We're not even close. The threat is greater now than it ever was before. What have we gained from these lockdowns then? What have we gained from this extreme social distancing? Well, so far, we managed to not overwhelm our medical resources in most places in the world. We managed to get the r naught values down from over 3 to approaching 1. 
This is very, very good. And that's because of about 80% social distancing, not 100%, about 80% social distancing and quarantines. So we managed to stop the first outbreak somewhat. We have seen the hospital admissions level off. So that curve is flattened. We don't really know how many new cases are out there because we're not testing everybody. And until you can test everybody, you don't really know. We know that it's still growing. And because of increases in testing, we can't really see if actual new cases are leveling off or not. But we do know that cases that are severe enough for people to be hospitalized have leveled off. So that's a good indicator that we have flattened the curve. So does that mean that the threat is gone and we can just continue life as normal? No. We have 2 million seeds for the next round, or as the case may be, we could have 50 times that or even 60 times that as some random sampling has revealed. So instead of 2 million seeds, maybe we have 120 million seeds. But still, we have 7.7 billion people on the planet, which means that this coronavirus outbreak has only touched a tiny fraction of the world's population so far. So the threat is bigger now than it ever was before. But we have multiple threats that are happening at the same time. The people of the world are getting restless. And so politicians want to begin moving forward. But even more concerning at this point is that the world's economy is on the brink of disaster. So how do we move forward? Well, the public health orders that came out in Colorado are probably indicative of what's happening in a lot of other places. I think the goal here was to give people a feeling of hope and progress without creating a new outbreak. And so in Colorado, they allowed meetings up to groups of 10. They're opening businesses as long as the business doesn't have more than 10 people in it at the same time. And the businesses are following good health protective measures so that coronavirus is not spread. So that was a relief. There were other things that were added about um, certain types of daycares and uh, things like that. So what did that do for us? Restaurants are still closed. Large events are still shut down. Large businesses still you can't meet. But some small businesses can begin to operate a little bit again. Why did they do that? Well, they thought maybe that that wouldn't cause the r not value to shoot up through the roof and that people could get hope and see progress. But the reality is we're a long, long way from cracking this nut. It's a tough one. What are our hopes? What are our options at this point? Herd immunity is one option. That's where you say, forget about social distancing, let it run its course. Everyone's going to get sick, and a lot of people are going to die, and then hopefully we'll have immunity. There are issues with this, of course. The immunity that you get from the antibodies of COVID-19 are not yet established. We don't know how much immunity you get or how long it lasts. Now, if it acts like other viruses, you will get some degree, hopefully a large degree of immunity, and that immunity will last for a long time. Perhaps that immunity can even last a lifetime. That would be great. But we don't actually know that yet. Only time will tell. We have to see over time what happens to people's immunity who have had COVID-19 and gotten well again. What about a vaccine? Well, there have been huge strides made toward a vaccine. And efforts are going faster and more strongly for solving this one than probably any virus that's ever existed. However, 
we're probably still a year out, maybe 18 months. So a vaccine is not around the corner. It's not going to set us free. What about better treatments for COVID-19? Yes, better treatments are being developed. And we're getting more resources on hand to help people who need those special hospitalization type resources. So we've made some ground there, but could we handle it if the whole world got sick for the herd immunity? If we quit doing the social distancing and the answer is no, people would just be lined up outside of the hospitals dying. We need to be isolating susceptible populations, no matter what we do going forward. The susceptible populations need to be isolated and they need to be protected and cared for. And that's going to be until they can have immunity that comes from a safe source, like a vaccine. So when the vaccine is developed in maybe a year, then those people can be vaccinated. And hopefully then they'll have the immunity necessary that they don't have to worry about it either. But that means that susceptible populations are going to be under some sort of social isolation for a long time. We also need antibody testing. We need to know who has that immunity and who doesn't. And, of course, we have the option of continued shutdowns and lockdowns and social distancing measures. That's kind of where we are. the authorities have worked to try to keep people calm and say we're making progress, but at the same time, there's not a quick and easy and universal solution at this time. There's also one other option, and the media is beginning to talk about this option more and more, and that's the option of contact tracing. The idea is this. Someone tests positive for the coronavirus. Then that person's whereabouts since they got sick have to be tracked and every single person that came into contact with that person then needs to be tested and quarantined to find out if they get sick or not before they make other people sick. And if they have been long enough, they test positive and they've been out long enough outside of quarantine, then everybody that those people came in contact with have to be tested and quarantined. And if they were out long enough before the health department caught up with them, then everyone that they came in contact with would also have to be tested and quarantined. But you get the idea. You try to get ahead of the spread of the virus. And so anybody who has it can't come in contact with other people and the virus can't be spread. In so doing, you can shut down the spread of the virus and contain it. But that means contact tracing. That means the authorities have to know everyone that you've come in contact with in the last, eh, call it five days or a week. They have to know every place you've been in the last five days or a week. And they need to be able to do that without requiring millions of people to track millions of cases to try to isolate who may or may not have been contacted. And it's, it's an exponential problem. How do you solve problems of this magnitude? 
Well, you don't do it manually with people. You do it with technology. You do it with smartphones and credit card records and calling records. The government already can access the details about where you've been if you carry a smartphone and about where you've done transactions because of your debit cards and credit cards. They already have that ability. The deal is that information is not supposed to be used to track people. They can track people, but they're not supposed to track people. Currently, that type of information is used to find criminals. So with a warrant, that information can be used to track people down. Now we're talking about no warrants. We're talking about everybody being tracked so that if someone gets sick, you can be notified if you came into contact with a sick person. That's what contact tracing is. This is a highly volatile and highly controversial idea because it means that people are giving up their privacy. You know, what's more private than where you spend your time each moment of each day and who you come in contact with each moment of each day? There are really two major schools of thought about issues like these. On the one side, you have people that say, we have a public health crisis, this is for the greater good, and we can trust our government, the authorities, to do the right thing with this data and this extreme power over us. That's one school of thought. We're doing the right thing, we can trust the government. The other school of thought is, history has shown that authorities can never be trusted with this much information and power, no matter what the circumstances are. Give me liberty or give me death. That's the other camp. I think both camps have very valid arguments, and I'm not here to argue one side above another, except to say that history has shown us that there are many evil people in the world who do horrendous things. And I'll just say it this way. I looked up the number of genocides that happened in the 20th century, and the numbers are kind of shocking. People generally think about what happened with Hitler and the Holocaust when they think of this subject. And then sometimes they think about smaller acts of genocide that they heard about around the planet. Sometimes people remember Pal Pot or Mao or Stalin, and they say, yeah, it has happened, but, you know, it's been isolated, we think. Well, guess what? Uh, it's hard to know how many people died because of wicked leadership around the world, but we do know that the number is pretty much confirmed as somewhere around 50 million people in the 20th century. And those numbers are probably way too small. Other estimates exceed 80 million people that were killed because of evil people who wanted power. And that was just in a hundred year period of human history. That's the reason why there's concern about giving up privacy. That's the reason why there's concern about giving up our liberties. There are so many human rights involved. The right to assemble, including religious freedom, and to conduct protests. This is a freedom of speech issue as well, which many would argue is a country's most critical liberty. The right to conduct business and to innovate. This has a lot to do with the right to own property, including intellectual property, and to leverage it for increasing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What about the right to individual privacy, the right to travel? What about singles who want to meet up with other singles and form relationships? What about the freedom to celebrate special occasions like graduations, weddings, funerals? There are hundreds of practices and rights and liberties that are curtailed 
by these sorts of actions. And we're already experiencing that now with the social lockdowns. So what is the out? Where do we go from here? I didn't want to be depressing today. I actually put off putting this episode out by several days because I was waiting for some good news. And then I realized there is some good news. The good news is how we manage the storm. Not that there is no storm or that the storm is over. It's too soon for that. Even if we could end the lockdowns and the shutdowns, we are still going to be wearing masks. We're still not going to be having large gatherings. And, and the economic comeback is going to be slow and halting and awkward because there's so much damage already done. It's not like you can flip a switch and turn it back on again. So right now we remain in the midst of the storm. Darned if we do, darned if we don't. So that is the state of the coronavirus affair right now. Here we are at the end of April, the beginning of May, the time period when we were looking forward to the relaxing of the social distancing measures, and they were relaxed only very slightly in Colorado and in other places around the nation because it's still too early. And I know that's disappointing, and people are getting restless. Well, let me say this. If we don't do things correctly, then millions of lives will still be lost. Millions and millions and millions of lives will be lost. We know this. But there are ways to move forward. One idea that I heard that I thought had some merit was a intermittent and controlled reopening. And how this would work would be that people would be tested for the antibodies. And if you have the antibodies, then the assumption, which is an experiment, is that you have some immunity. Then they would relax the social distancing measures, let everyone go back to work for only two weeks, knowing that at the end of the two weeks, you're going back home again. At that point, we have extensive testing to see how many more people got sick. And during the two-week period, they can allow those illnesses to run their course. The hospitals can deal with the more critical cases. And then we go into another two-week period of normalcy, knowing that that's going to be over in two weeks. And at the end of that two-week period, once again, we go into lockdown. We see how many more people got sick, let the hospitals manage those cases. This way, we can build herd immunity little by little by little, and hopefully not overwhelm our medical resources. I think that some variant on that idea might be a path forward. But keep in mind, the assumption there is that we have herd immunity from the antibodies, which is not fully established yet. Should it be that way? Yes. Am I willing to bet on that? I think I am willing to bet on that. I think it's a worthwhile bet, but it's an experiment. It's not proven. But something like that could get us moving forward again. I am willing to carry an antibody card, but am I willing for governments to track my every move? Without a warrant, without a reason, I don't know. Would I rather be under lockdowns and shutdowns for many more weeks, months to come? These are tough, tough decisions, troubling times. Like I said before, you're on your sailboat in the middle of the storm. You can't change the storm. You probably can't change your sailboat. But you can try to weather it by making wise decisions. Trim the sails the right way. Stay at the helm. Point the bow into the wind and into the waves. And, you know, wait it out. That's where we are. And I've said many times on this podcast, and I'm going to say it again, the things that get us through times like these are things like love and long-suffering 
and encouraging each other and forgiveness. We're all kind of treading new water here. We're living life differently than we ever have before, but we can make the most of it. There are some advantages to this as well. Seek those out. Look for what is positive in your life right now and maximize that. Take advantage of it. You may not have those opportunities in this way ever again. Hopefully, we won't have those opportunities in this way ever again. So let's maximize the good. Let's love on each other. Let's be patient. And I know people are frustrated. They don't like being told what to do, especially in countries like the United States that has always celebrated liberty and for great reason. I've said for years, we should never sacrifice liberty on the altar of security because then you get neither one. Let me say that again. We should never sacrifice liberty on the altar of security because then you get neither liberty nor security in the end. At the same time, we still need to make wise decisions to protect people and to curtail the spread of this deadly virus. So we're doing what we can. We all have to pull together. One thing I do know is that humans have proven to be resilient and to survive much worse than this. And we can do the same. I think that generally, as a society, we're disappointed. A lot of people were looking forward to the end of April and the beginning of May as being free again, being able to resume activities in some degree of normalcy. But, boy, didn't happen a whole lot, did it? Well, that's probably the way it's going to continue for a while. The tools that we need to manage this crisis haven't yet been developed because we don't have a vaccine. We don't really know what the antibodies will do for us, although I think we should gamble on that one. And we don't have a way to test people in mass for the antibodies. We need test kits by the hundreds of millions. And until we have test kits by the hundreds of millions, then really we have our hands tied behind our backs. So where are we today? We are better off than we were a month ago. We've made a lot of progress. Are we ready for the exit, for the reopening, for the complete relaxing of social distancing? And the answer is no, not really even close. And the tools that we need to be able to do that are still some time out. So what do we do? We do the best we can. We love on each other. We keep on keeping on and make the most of these circumstances. Thank you for listening to Weathering Coronavirus. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today's show is produced by Caleb Linville. And until the next show, stay safe out there.